We're in Philippians 3. Philippians 3. Thank you for reading that for us. Paul, in Philippians 3, is making his main point to the Philippian church in the letter that he's writing to them. And his main point is he wants them to rejoice. He wants them to know why they can rejoice, how they can rejoice. He wants them to be a people of rejoicing. That's why Philippians 3.1 starts with, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He wants them to be a people of joy. It's what we want for our church. It's what I want for you. It's what we want for each other. We want to be a people, not who gather, and it seems like a funeral is taking place every Sunday at 11, uh, but rather people who gather, and it's some sort of party. It's the kind of party uh, that you survive, right? Now, we're not talking about a college party here. We're not talking about a, a party like in Vegas party, but like a celebratory event, a celebration, a, a good thing, a happy thing, where people actually leave the celebration better than when they came, and they do this all the time. There are people of great joy, of smiling, of, uh, of laughter, of lightheartedness. They rejoice in the Lord. And like I said, he's telling us how we can do that. He's telling us why we can do that. And for Paul, a lot of this comes down to an idea called righteousness, specifically the righteousness of Christ, the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Now, this is sort of a part two. So if you weren't here last week, going back to the podcast, listening through that, we'll fill in some of the blanks. But Philippians 1 through 11, 3, 1 through 11, rather, is a complete thought But last week, we were only able to get through about verse 3. I hope today to get through the next handful of verses, get a little bit deeper into Paul's argument on why Christians can indeed be people of joy, on why you and I can indeed rejoice, no matter what's going on or when it's happening or why it's happening, we can rejoice in the Lord. Last week, the big thing we took from verses 1 through 3 was the theme of righteousness, but we didn't specifically say that word. Last week, we talked about how we are rejoicing in the Lord by remembering, how we can rejoice in the Lord by remembering the simple, I mean, the very simple gospel that saves us by grace and not by works. Just that alone is enough to start the party, right? It's not based on what you do. It's based on what he's done. It's not based on how you are. It's based on who he is. It's not, it's not a works-based thing for us or a religion. Rather, it's a grace-based thing for us, a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. And we talked about how that is enough to get the party started. That is enough for rejoicing. We're saved by grace, not by works. This was important for the Philippian believers to know. Because in the Philippian church, there was this group that were either coming in or had already come in, a group called the Judaizers. And they were preaching to the Philippian believers, mostly Gentile converts, that they needed more than just grace, they needed works. That they needed the particular works of the Old Testament law for the guys in specific, they needed the act of circumcision to be totally righteous. That was really what righteousness was found in. It was Jesus, sure, but also the law. That was the key to righteousness, according to these Judaizers, and this was threatening, this was taking away the Philippian joy. Because, I mean, these Gentile guys were formerly, before Christ, they were pagans. 
idolaters. They were not keeping rules. They were breaking rules. They were wiling out, right? These were like, they were in perpetual high school rebellion. They were adults, but still living like they were 17-year-olds, you know, with the chip on their shoulder. And then they come to Christ, and their life does change, but they're not sure if they can put on all these rituals, these laws, and these Old Testament uh, rites of passage. And so now they're in this place where their joy is threatened, that their joy is insecure. And Paul is coming in and assuring them, no, no, it's not by those works, that you rejoice. It's not by those works that you get saved. It's not by those works that you become righteous. In fact, you are the people of God, even without those rules and laws and circumcision, because you put confidence in Jesus, and that's all it takes to become the people of God. In fact, he says that the people of God put no confidence, none, in the flesh. And now, in the next couple of verses, Paul continues on that theme of rejoicing in our salvation, but he digs a little deeper, dives a little deeper, and that he starts talking about it in terms of righteousness. So the hope is today to get a little bit more clear on righteousness and why that causes or or allows us, even implores us, to rejoice in the Lord. Now, why is this concept of righteousness important? uh, It's not a word we use a lot, is it? Like we don't talk of ourselves or others primarily in that term, the word righteousness. We don't even think of ourselves typically thinking of that exact word, the word righteousness. But it's actually, I would argue, a concept that we interact with more than you would think mentally and emotionally. Righteousness, a good comparison for it, righteousness has a lot to do with clothing, clothing. Right, uh, it's spiritual clothing. Clothing has a lot to do with our comfort, thus righteousness, our spiritual clothing, has a lot to do with our spiritual comfort. Right, some of you know this. I bet we could draw some funny stories from the crowd, though I couldn't really think of a funny story for myself, though plenty of stories. Some of you know this, that wearing the wrong clothes to a particular event can be wildly uncomfortable. How many of you had an experience like this? You show up to an event, you're not dressed like everybody else is dressed or dressed for the event, right? It's, it's uncomfortable. Like I said, I racked my brain for a funny story because you know me, I'm a walking embarrassing moment, but I couldn't really think of any real hilarious examples, but I did think of one example. Um, a few uh, years ago, we went on vacation to one of my favorite places in the world. We haven't been there for a long time, but uh, Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Anybody ever been to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, Okay. It's awesome. It's a redneck paradise, okay? The smell of pancakes and cigarettes everywhere you walk. And it's just, it's a wonderful thing. They should sell that. They should bottle that up. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful smell. And so, you know, it's an interesting place, Gatlinburg. It's, a, it's the most hyper-spiritualized place uh, I've ever seen. I mean, you got people drinking moonshine while they're watching a gospel quartet sing Amazing Grace. And it's just, I don't know, something about that combo is just fascinating to me, right? I'm getting my airbrush t-shirt, you know, John, Mitch Miller, John 316. The guy's like, where can I spit my tobacco? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know, not on the shirt. And so we're in vacation in Gatlinburg, one of the most interesting places. And it was in September. And here in Greenville, it was warm. And so I was thinking it was warm. And so I actually kind of almost like packed like we were going to the beach or something, shirts, uh, like T-shirts, shorts, whatever. But in the mountains, the Smoky Mountains over there in Gatlinburg in September, it was actually more of a fall vibe. And the whole weekend, like Thursday through Sunday, right, I'm a little bit chilly 
during everything we do, right? A little chilly everywhere, right? Standing outside the fudge shop, waiting on my samples, right? Because I'm not paying for it. Uh, but, well, because the next fudge shop has free samples, so, you know, you could get a whole thing of it. Anyway, the point is, is that I'm chilly everywhere we go. Walk into this restaurant, walk into that restaurant, walk into this pancake place, walk into our after pancake pancakes. The whole thing, I'm just chilly. And I, you know what? I'm uncomfortable. Shorts and a t-shirt when really I'm dying to be in jeans and boots and like a flannel. That, I mean, I was just uncomfortable. And so, you know, I'm uncomfortable in my skin. I want to hide. I want to go indoors. Everything everybody else wants to do besides eat pretty much is it requires being outdoors, walking around just wildly uncomfortable for the whole weekend. It can make us uncomfortable just in and of ourselves. It makes us also uncomfortable around others. It makes us uncomfortable around others. Perhaps you've had an experience like this where you're invited to some, I don't know, luncheon for work, and they tell you to you know, come in business attire, and I don't know, maybe it's a dream where you show up you know, there's scary dreams where you're not dressed right or not dressed. Uh, you know, you come, it's supposed to be business attire. You come to your luncheon. Everybody's in suits and ties, whatever. Let's just say you come in, I don't know, Clemson t-shirt, a bathrobe, whatever. Right? This idea of like, hey, I am not only uncomfortable just in and of myself, I'm uncomfortable around others. They all seem really put together. I do not feel really put together. This is what it's like for the soul when it is steeped in unrighteousness. It's wildly uncomfortable. This is how we feel before God. We want to hide ourselves. We want to get out of the way. We want to not be seen. This is how we can feel before others. They seem good. We feel bad. They seem innocent. We feel guilty because deep down somewhere we are aware that spiritually speaking, we are un righteous. We are very underdressed, and we know this is part of us. We know this about ourselves, no matter what other people might or might not see on the outside. So it's very (laughs) uncomfortable. This is how the Philippian men were feeling around those Judaizers, and now starting to feel this way around God, if you will, as well. Because they're constantly saying, you need to add more. You need to add the works of the law. You need to add the Old Testament circumcision. They're starting to potentially believe all this, and thus they're starting to feel ashamed, whatever room they're walking into. And they're starting to feel a little bit ashamed as they go to pray, like, Lord, I don't know if you really want to hear this, because I've never been to a Passover. I've never been to the Feast of Booths. I've never been to, uh, I've never kept the Sabbath, and I've never done the ritual of circumcision like the Old Testament believers have. And so internally, we, they, because of our sin, there's this feeling of being unclothed, exposed before God and before others in our unrighteousness. This is a very universal experience. It's a very human experience, an experience I imagine that some of you today are having, that you have, that you don't feel quite comfortable being here, that you hope we don't find out what you know about you, that in small group you want to keep quiet or, or, or skirt the issue. You just, there's this sense of exposure, this sense of unrighteousness. Throughout history, because everybody deals with this, there's essentially been two options to overcome such a discomfort. Well, I guess three. We'll focus on two. Here, I guess there's three. One, I guess, is to simply continue in unrighteousness, to, to, to not be embarrassed by it, to not feel ashamed in it, to embrace it and, and, and sort of just, just downplay it, minimize it, go with it, the unrighteousness, be comf- become comfortable in it, and that's called rebellion. 
But that's actually not what Paul is addressing here. The other two options are particularly what Paul is addressing here in Philippians 3, and that is self-righteousness or imputed righteousness. Self-righteousness, which is what the Judaizers were teaching, is this strategy to overcome that sense of being unclothed, that unrighteousness. To overcome that discomfort, this is where by you put on the fabric, if you will, of righteous qualities until hopefully one day you find yourself dressed for the ball, as it were. Right? So you're trying to be a good person, keep a list of do's and don'ts, trying to do good things, trying to have good experiences. This can even include new ageism where you're trying to be good in and of yourself or have goodness within that comes out, aiming for some sort of enlightenment, self-righteousness. Imputed righteousness is totally different and really it's only found in the teachings of Christianity. Imputed righteousness means that someone totally outside of you puts something on you. Someone totally outside of you clothes you. So you abandon your own righteousness. You rip that fabric up. You confess that you have nothing to wear. And you fully acknowledge before Jesus that case and plead with him for his robes of righteousness since you are helplessly exposed. This is where you rely on Jesus to give you a gift, and that gift is his righteousness, his standing before the Father, his standing before the church, that you might finally be comforted and have a seat at the table with others. This this imputed righteousness, literally, this is what happens when we get saved. It's this idea where he takes our record of disobedience, and he gives us his record of obedience, To anyone who asks it, it's imputed righteousness. So which is the better option? Because it's still a debate that rages today between all world religions and Jesus. Which is the better better option? Self-righteousness or imputed righteousness? The scriptures, specifically Paul here today in Philippians 3 argues passionately for imputed righteousness. And he argues passionately against self-righteousness. And Paul would know because as it so happens, Paul's life is the ultimate case study on this debate. Paul's life is the ultimate case study on self-righteousness versus imputed righteousness. So we can dive in, check this out. Here's Paul's claim. Look at this. Well, verse one, Philippians 3 says, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Okay, so he starts to argue how, why. Verse 3, he says, true Christians put no confidence, none, in the flesh. Then verse 4 is where we see this crazy claim where he says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Okay, so Paul here is saying, okay, the gospel doesn't put confidence in the flesh. The gospel does not put confidence in our works or our self-righteousness. But in verse 4, he's saying basically that if it did work like that, I would be the most confident person in the room. Like if that's what brought us comfort, I would be far more comfortable than you. I would be way more righteous than the Judaizers who've come into your church. I would win best dressed in the back of the yearbook every year. 
These Judaizers would look like they got dressed in the dark compared to me. Yeah, they have self-righteousness, but it is nothing compared to my self-righteousness. That's Paul's claim. You see, if anyone would know whether or not self-righteousness actually brought any comfort, it would be Paul. One of the most interesting characters in the whole New Testament. His testimony is told over and over again. It's one of the most repeated stories in the New Testament because it's an extreme story. Paul's testimony is extreme. Right? He, he was indeed an extremist against Christ, persecuting the church. Then he essentially for lack of better words, became an extremist for Christ, planting churches all over the known world, writing half of the New Testament, suffering greatly, even dying for the sake of the gospel. Paul's literally this ultimate case study in self-righteousness versus imputed righteousness. As Paul claims here, he was indeed, before Christ saved him, the most self-righteous man on the planet. I mean, look what he says in verse four. If anyone thinks they can have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Right? He, he starts to list his resume. Here's Paul's resume. He lays out a self-righteous wardrobe for us. This is what he's got going on. One, rituals. Verse five, circumcised the eighth day. Just like the Judaizers, Paul had followed that Old Testament ritual. It was given to him at the right time. And in the minds of those early Jewish believers in the minds of these early Jewish Judaizers, that ritual was this sure sign of the citizenship and kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God. Okay, he had the ritual. Two, he had the birthright. Keep reading in verse five. He's of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. It's really hard for us to translate this to our culture, but have you ever maybe met somebody, I know I have on occasion, who thinks they're more spiritual than the average Joe because their grandpa and their great-grandpa were pastors, and they just kind of feel like they, by birthright, have been given the family uh, spirituality and be given sort of this special place in the church and in the kingdom, which isn't true. But there are people who think like that. Paul's saying, I had that going like, but times 10, because I uh, was related to Abraham. <laughs> I was related to the father of the faith. It was my birthright, essentially, to be connected to God and God's people. So I got the birthright. Three, I lived right. Verse five, continuing, concerning the law of Pharisee. So the Pharisee uh, group was a group in Jesus' day who added rules to the rules, right? So you go to Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, it's about 613 commandments, and the Pharisees were the people who said, that's not enough. We need to add some of that, okay? For those of you who go to uh, Bob Jones, imagine they give you the handbook at the beginning of the year, and you're like, this needs more pages, right? Like, that's kind of what they were doing. Imagine you're such a good kid. Your mom's like, hey, don't play in the street, and you know what, mom, I'm not even gonna play in the yard because it's close to the street, right? That's how good of a kid I am. This is what the Pharisees were doing with the rules of God. Don't work on the Sabbath. Well, we're not even gonna have a campfire on the Sabbath, right? We're, we're not even going to, we're not gonna do anything that even resembles resembling the resemblance of work on the Sabbath. Paul was one of these guys. Now, the Pharisees did have a bad reputation for these this sort of dead works. Like they would do all these works, but they didn't really care. They were known to have like really no emotion or passion for God himself. And Paul says, I wasn't exactly that type of Pharisee, right? Not only did I live right, I felt right. Look at verse six. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, right? So Paul, remember, he's an extremist. At first he was an extremist against Christ and Christianity, 
So before he became Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. We meet him in the scriptures. He's persecuting the church. Really, if you take a step back and look at it, Saul, he is actually leading a team of people persecuting the church, and he's sort of the coach from the sidelines calling out the plays. It's more like what he's doing. So he's the leader of persecutors even, holding their coats while they stone some of the deacons to death in the early church. He's going to Damascus with full permission from the temple to kill and to imprison Christians. Say, so why is he doing that? Is it because he's bloodthirsty and loves violence? Actually, he says here in verse six, it was because I had a great deal of zeal for God. He was doing this for God. He was doing this because he loved God in his mind, in his ideas. It was broken, it was wrong, but he was sincere. These Christians were trying to change everything in Jerusalem amongst the people of God by saying that salvation was in faith, in Christ, and he really believed at that time that this was blasphemy. He really believed at this time that, that God would want this purified out of Judea. So let's, let's take these lawbreakers to the death penalty. He was zealous. His community of fellow Pharisees believed he was doing a good thing. Okay, so we, on this side of history, go, Paul, you were a murderer. But back then, before he was saved, with those fellow Pharisees, they saw him as above reproach. Right? Not only did he do right, not only did he feel right, he looked right. Look at verse 6 again. He says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. I was above reproach. Here's what this means, at least in part, that no other Pharisee could look at Paul's life day to day and say, here's the law you're forgetting. Here's one of the 613 laws you have missed. Here is one of the laws Paul is breaking when nobody else is looking. Nobody could even go up to Paul and say, I'm keeping the law more strictly than you are. Literally, what he's saying is, look, Paul was the gold standard in law-based righteousness. Paul is the ultimate test case for whether or not self-righteousness works. He had the finest fashion self-righteousness could buy. And then, in Acts chapter number nine, God, Jesus Christ, shows up to him on the Damascus road and, and in his presence, there's this great bright light shown upon Paul. Paul's literally seated, if you will, at the table of God. He is in the presence of God before the throne of God. And what do we see? Is Paul comfortable or is he uncomfortable in the midst of Jesus' presence, that light? Oh, he's uncomfortable. He's blinded. He's knocked to the ground. He is convicted of sin. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul starts to believe, I mean, and one would, with the bright and shining light, the resurrected Jesus standing in front of you. Paul says, what would you have me to do, Lord? And in his belief, Paul is covered in the imputed righteousness. The, and it's not the fancy version of this. It's the same imputed righteousness all believers are given when they come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness of sins and claim him as king and Lord. It is a standard issue. Right? So he goes from the, the, the fanciest 
clothing of self-righteousness, if you will, metaphorically, to standard-issue imputed righteousness. You know the story. He's led to Ananias' house. He's discipled. He begins to walk with Jesus. He starts to become aware that he was literally not the best friend of God like he thought he was. He was the worst enemy of God. And yet Jesus saved him sheerly by grace. Paul joins the church. None of the church really respects him. They all fear him. Ananias, in a vision from God, is told, take Paul in. And Ananias is like, I don't know, Jesus. <laughs> like, maybe he could have an Airbnb down the street. There's a lot of places here in Damascus for sale. Ananias tries to send him to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church is like, don't send that dude here. He's crazy. We don't want Paul here. He's killing us, right? Just a few months ago. All the church starts to accept him. Of course, Barnabas, you know, he's a softy, and so he kind of helps out. And as everybody, look, this guy's a good guy. But really, everybody, at least early on, is accepting Paul into the church because Jesus told them to. Literally, like when your mom's like, you have to sit at, you have to go to that play date. You know, be nice, right? Like, this is the idea. Jesus said, Paul's one of us. We'll obey him, but we're not super comfortable with it. Literally, he is now in a relationship where he's used to being in relationships with others based on his merit. I deserve a seat at this table. He is now in the church sheerly by grace. They do not care that he studied under Gamaliel. They do not care that he can recite the Torah. They don't care that he has the same birthmark as Grandpa Abraham. Right? They don't care. They are just accepting him based on Jesus' righteousness, not his own. So he goes from designer self-righteousness and in a moment is saved, and now he is clothed with standard issue, imputed righteousness. Which one does Paul prefer? It's the ultimate test case. Paul, which one's better? Which one's more comfortable? Which one feels right? Which one solves the unrighteousness problem? Which one would you rather wear before God and before others? Let's look at what he says. This is Paul's pick, verse seven through nine. Beautiful words. Take them in, take them slow, because they're everything. I mean, this is literally everything. This is everything. But what things were gained to me? These things I have counted loss. For Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, self righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith. In Christ, imputed righteousness, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul, the ultimate test case between self-righteousness and imputed righteousness, picks imputed righteousness all day, every day, bar none, by far. In essence, here's what he's saying in verses 7 through 9. because It's incredible. It's amazing. He says... I was riding down that road to Damascus and I was wearing my Sunday best. I was wearing my parents, my mother, my father, my last name, my, my family line. I was wearing my education, my years in the temple, my graduation to that of Pharisee, my job as an Old Testament scholar. I was wearing my conscience, the very conscience that told me I was good, the conscience that told me I was safe. I was wearing the conscience that told me I was actually better than all my colleagues. And then Christ came. 
And he gave me all of himself, his goodness, his kindness, his forgiveness, his blood, his death, his resurrection, his calling, his Holy Spirit, his righteousness. And in the midst of the two, I tore up my self-righteous robes and I dumped them on that Damascus road like they were trash so that I could walk down the rest of that road blind and injured but clothed with the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. I wanted to walk down that road in those clothes for they're the only clothes that I really ever started to feel comfortable in before God and others. I threw away all of my self-righteousness for the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Didn't keep any of it. And now only claim Christ as my righteousness. That's how much better it is. He picks imputed righteousness. Say, Paul, why? Why is it so much better? Well, here's the thing. With self-righteousness, you can either get fear or you get fierce, but no joy. So with self-righteousness, you can be fierce, and that kind of feels good for a minute, but it, it's, it's short-lived. Like Paul, you start to think of yourself as better than everybody and justified in abusing everybody, excluding everybody because you keep the rules and they don't, and you're in charge and they're not, so you're more human, they're less human, and you're fierce. You become judgmental, you become grumpy, you become joyless. There's no rejoicing in that. Self-righteousness can lead us to being fierce. It can also lead us to fear. This is where you are basing everything on your works, but you start to realize your works are pretty subpar. Right? So you're like, hey, I'm good with God based on what I am, what I do, who I am, what I've done. I'm good with God. So then what starts to happen if you do something not so good, which you eventually will, right? Same with others. What starts to happen if they think you're a good kid and really secretly, deep down, you know you're a bad kid, and then all of a sudden, you're living a life of fear. You're like a guy who, in the military who's committed the crime of stolen valor. Have you ever heard of this? It's a, it's a crime. It's called stolen valor. It's when someone in the military maybe wasn't on the front lines, but gets and wears the Medal of Honor anyway, or someone who wasn't part of a situation who claims to have been there and fought in ways they didn't fight, so they're taking credit for some, being a hero that they really weren't. And you could actually get uh, discharged, maybe even imprisoned for this, it's an actual crime on the book, Stolen Valor. It's where you say, I'm a hero, but you're really no hero. And so what's a guy with Stolen Valor afraid of? As he's telling his story, as he's wearing his medal, he's just hoping no one finds out he's no hero. And this is a lot of what self-righteousness is like as we sit at the table with others and with the Lord. It's this idea of like, I'm going to present this as if I am a hero, but deep down I know I'm no hero. So you're living a life constantly in fear, particularly the fear of man, but also fear before God. This is the idea of self-righteousness. It gives us fierce or fear, but no joy. It never really feels comfortable you're always gonna be potentially exposed. You start to realize that self-righteous robes are no robes at all. In fact, Isaiah 64 says all our righteousness are filthy rags. But imputed righteousness, that doesn't make you fearful. That doesn't make you fierce. If anything, all that does is give you a friend. 
Here's why Paul says imputed righteousness is better. I love this, okay? Because imputed righteousness, which is given to those who fully and only and completely depend on the righteousness of Jesus, those who accept Christ, right? When you accept Jesus, you get covered in his righteousness, and because your sin is gone and your righteousness is his, you also not only get his righteousness, you get him. You get a friend, Jesus. Read it again and see this. Look at verse eight. Try to identify here with me. Paul's joy. He says, yeah, indeed, I encount all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. In the Greek, it's the idea of I know Christ, the way we would know a friend. Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, dung, that I might gain or have Jesus Christ. You see, you can either have self-righteousness or imputed righteousness, but you really cannot exist with both. You can't have both. They don't go together. You have to give up one for the other. One has to be lost. One has to be gained. And when you're willing to give up being fierce and being fearful, you gain a friend. Here's how it works and here's what it does, okay? So let's, let's, let's get into this. Here's how imputed righteousness works and we'll tell you what it does. Here's how it works. First, we have to understand this. Here's a very basic but empowering and powerful and important truth. God is righteous. He is love, he is kind, he is good. He is father, he is friend. He also is totally, completely righteous, amen? He is the holy God. We see this very clearly in the life of God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus. Hey, Jesus is, in and of himself, righteousness. He only ever does righteousness. He never disobeys God the Father, the first member of the Trinity. He never defrauds his neighbor. He never does anything he should not do. Jesus never neglects to do anything he ought to do. You see this during his three-year ministry, walking around Galilee, feeding the poor, healing the sick, giving his life for the sins of the world. He is goodness. He is only good. God is righteous. Now let's look at us. God created us, and he called us very good. Now, there, th that means, listen, I'm not saying there's any reason that we ought to engage in self-hatred. We do not hate ourselves. We are made in the image of God. Thus, we have dignity, and we have honor, and we have value. So there's no, there's no holiness to just to, 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 to devaluing your humanity. But we realize pretty quickly in life we are not goodness itself, <laughs> right? So we are, we are worthy of dignity, honor, and value, but now we start to see that there is something broken. In fact, we are depraved and sinful without being taught we can lie, cheat, steal. I mean, we, we are good at doing what is not good just by our nature. We can think unrighteous thoughts, say unrighteous words, do unrighteous deeds, and all of a sudden, we're, no, hey, I'm in good in the sense that God has made me in his image, and this was meant to be good, but I'm very insecure because I am not only good. I am a sinner, unrighteousness. This insecurity, it's like we can tell that we're showing up before God and others unclothed, unrighteous, potentially exposed, it's very uncomfortable. But the gospel is this. Here's the good news for you this morning. Jesus sees us in our filthy rags and he loves us anyway. 
He takes our filthy rags on himself, on the cross. Jesus takes our guilt. He takes our shame. He dies in our place and for our sins. Many things happened in the atonement. One of them is that he was our substitute and a great exchange took place to where for all who believe... The righteousness of Jesus, I'll say it this way, the sin that they committed, their filthy rags was placed on Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus is, the, the, is placed on them. The, 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 the rags are taken off of us, the sinful rags are taken off of us, placed on Jesus and on the cross for those who believe, Jesus' righteous robe, the very robe that can heal you if you just touch the hem. That robe covers us head to toe. It is draped over us and our soul in its entirety. So at the cross, Jesus not only forgives and removes sin, but he imputes or adds to us his righteousness, his goodness, his record of obedience before God the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amen? Amen. This is good news. We are clothed now, in belief, we are clothed in blood-washed linen. Our sins were scarlet. Now they are whiter than snow. God sees you. If you're in Christ, God sees you as if you were the one that fed the poor, as if you were the one who healed the sick. It's as if you were the one who gave your life. That's how it works. You give up your self-righteousness for his imputed righteousness, which he gives as a gift to all who will call on his name. This is what it does. Imputed righteousness, when you fully believe in it and embrace it and remember it and meditate upon it, it makes you totally comfortable in the presence of God. He, because of the cross, he is not mad at you, he is not going to crush you. He was crushed for you. He is not going to judge you. He was judged for you. He is not going to, to accuse you because he's not the accuser of the brethren. He calls you his brethren. He's one of us. We're one of him. You fit in with God because of imputed righteousness. You have a comfortable seat. You can sit at ease at his table at all times. Romans 5.1, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace. You have that righteousness, thus you are free to now be friends with Jesus, who you can feel comfortable with at any time. And what do you do when you feel comfortable in God's presence? You rejoice in the Lord, which is what Paul wants for his church and we want for you here at Griggs. Okay, so now how does this work? What does this do when it comes to our relationship with others? This is actually the heart of what Paul is getting at with these Philippians. Again, some of them, like we talked about last week, are being taunted by the Judaizers, these false teachers. They've come in. They want these Gentiles to feel less than. 
around them because they have not been circumcised or obey the laws of the Old Testament. Okay, so this not only confuses the Gentile dudes, but it's shaming for them in the church. Paul says, with imputed righteousness, you not only get Jesus' robes, you get Jesus himself, which means this, you're in Christ, Christ is in you. Here's what this means. This doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what the Judaizers know about you because Jesus already knows everything about you and has called you righteous. You do not have to fear them. You do not have to idolize their approval or the approval of anyone. You at Griggs do not have to idolize the approval of man. In fact, whatever you do that impresses your fellow man, you can actually count that as rubbish compared to the approval of Christ, which you have secured because of whatever he's done, which is the cross and the resurrection. Thus, you can be comfortable with whoever is at the table because they're either a sinner just like you were or they have imputed righteousness and salvation just like you have. They're either stuck in unrighteousness, which you can certainly sympathize with. You've been there before the cross, or they have imputed righteousness. And guess what? Because you're in Christ, you have that same outfit on. It's standard issue for all who believe. So you, together with any Christian, no matter what standards they have and what standards you have, I mean, in general, right? No matter how far along they are in the faith or how new you are to the faith, you two can feel comfortable with one another. And when you feel comfortable with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you rejoice in the Lord. Imputed righteousness covers us perfectly. It makes us comfortable in the presence of God and others. I want you to have that relief this morning. I told you about the time I'm in Gatlinburg with shorts on, T-shirt on, feeling chilly. I'm sitting there getting my, you know, third hot dog because I just had pancakes. I'm a little, I'm still not quite tied over, right? And I've just rode some broken go-kart down the Smoky Mountains and I'm chilly. And I remember on that vacation, the last, it was funny enough, it was the last morning. I, I, it would have been a little nicer if it was the first morning. But the last morning of that vacation, my grandpa Kelly, who's passed away now, out of nowhere, he just hands me a bunch of cash. Don't you love grandparents, right? I'm like, what is this for? It was like 200 bucks. He's like, that's shopping money for the trip. We're leaving in like three hours. But I was like, okay. Thank you, Grandpa Kelly. And maybe we had a whole day left. I don't know. But it was, we had some time left, but not much. And so I got that money, and I went straight to that giant outlet mall in Pigeon Forge. And I got long pants and a long sleeve shirt. And I will say, for the rest of the trip, that last day, I felt great. It was kind of like this relief, like, finally. I was walking around strutting. I was like, like a model or something. I just felt so, like I looked so good. I felt like I felt so good. Probably still had the tag on, like a dork, but still, like, I'm like, yeah, let's go do whatever you want. And I just felt, I felt complete. I felt clothed. I felt ready to be with others. Here's the idea, okay? 
It's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to put on imputed righteousness. It comforts us before God and others. It is the thing we must wear before him, but as we wear it before him and others, we are better than we were even in our birth, even in our self. We are in Christ, one with him. This is what I need you to do. I need you to respond to all of this, this word from Philippians 3, in faith. That's what I need from you. I am asking you to believe, to confess to Jesus that on your own, spiritually speaking, you have nothing aware. I am asking you to accept forgiveness of your sins, to accept Jesus' righteousness, which he will gladly give you. I am asking you to believe in something you cannot see, to abandon one way of thinking for faith, one way of thinking for righteous thinking. Here's the idea. You can see, I know you can see some of your self-righteousness. Others can see some of your self-righteousness. I am asking you to count that as loss, as, as rubbish, for in, embrace something you really can't see. You can't see the imputed righteousness of Christ. Others won't be able to see the imputed righteousness of Christ on you, but I am asking you in your emotions, in your heart, in your mind, with your faith, to fully depend on that righteousness, his imputed righteousness. I am asking you to take all those insecurities and preach down to them, preach to your own heart that you are covered by Jesus in entirety, that you are righteous in Christ. And I am asking you to believe that enough to rejoice in the Lord for this gift that he has given us. You can do that and demonstrate that now by coming to his table for communion. Nate Foote, one of our leaders, is gonna come up. He's gonna lead us in our time where we remember the cost of the robes we now wear, the righteous robes of Christ. And we're gonna remember what it does for us as we confess our sin and as we truly believe those sins are covered by grace.